1: Every team, every topic, everywhere,
2: this is Believe. I think it's really important with a career to not only love the material you're working with or the job you're doing, but love those around you who you can help. It's like every day I get up and sometimes you don't want to take 30 calls from somebody who has an antique German doll. (laughs) I'll even take those calls. <laughs> and it's like, no, I, I can't be short with this person. And I find myself, I'm pulled into it. And miraculously, I always get some wonderful adventure out of treating somebody nice.
1: Welcome back to Bucketless Careers. I'm Crystal Laurie. Thanks for joining me. My guest today, Timothy Gordon, could not love what he does for a living more. He is internationally recognized as an appraisal authority, evaluating or marketing important works of fine art, valuables, and collections for more than 25 years, having personally appraised millions of items. He's been an expert on the popular TV show PBS Antiques Roadshow and has worked on many high-profile collections. For example, the Princess Diana Collection at Kensington Palace, the Jim Morrison Estate, and many more. We dig into it all. And as you probably guessed, Tim has numerous intriguing stories to share with us. He's a person who's truly found his calling, and we learn more about this fascinating line of work along the way in this episode. All right, let's listen. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with me here on Bucket List Careers.
2: Thank you, Krista. I've been a big fan. I've listened to a lot of your episodes, ah, so always love exciting. to hear
1: that. Oh, I know this episode is going to be so much fun for lovers of rare treasures, priceless art, estates of the famous, sunken treasures, all these things. When you and I were connected, I thought, wow, this is such a unique career narrative. We're going to get into your pivots. What I want to start with, which I think really struck me, is how much this lights you up. Because this show is not just about transitions, but getting to your dream gig. So tell me what you love the most about it right off the bat.
2: I get up every morning and I'm so addicted to going out and finding new treasures (laughs) that if I don't have that, I have a bad day. So luckily I have a really great website that brings me leads galore and people with all kinds of crazy stories and treasures all day long and projects. And I just, I'm on adrenaline 24-7 with all that. I just dig it.
1: Totally feel that from you. Well, we want to get into your evolution (laughs) to being an internationally recognized art appraiser. I mean, it's impressive. Some of the famous estates you've worked on, just to name a few, Princess Diana, President Reagan, Jim Morrison, Al Capone, Howard Hughes, Ed Sullivan. And of course, we've got to get your take on the most interesting items you've come across. What a list. But you do so much more than that, Tim.
2: Well, who I am i'm I'm an expert generalist appraiser. I've spent my life evaluating history and following history, but getting to know the artifacts of usually dead people and dead celebrities. But also, I'll take on giant projects where I'll go in and appraise an entire art museum. and so, it's, it's led me to a point in my career to where it's kind of nice because great big projects come in continuously. Recently, I was named in the top five appraisers, for instance. And so, so people see that and they know that there's quality and that I have a great background. I have experience. I have the knowledge. But I also care about all my clients alive and dead. One project you mentioned was, it was Princess Diana. So I get on an airplane. I live in Montana. And I end up in Kensington palace after her death and I'm there to appraise her gowns and you cannot be that close to the gowns of princess Diana and, and be examining them and holding them thinking, my God, these are great treasures of art from the greatest princess of 500 years. And I was selected. I'm so honored to be here, but then you get connected to Diana and I do that with Mm. all my clients. So we could go down the list. I'd have a story with each and every one, and they're pretty fascinating.
1: (laughs) I remember reading about billionaire Howard Hughes who died reportedly without a valid will, and I thought, oh, I mean, there were, what, like 600 people who wanted a piece of the estate does that affect your work at all i'm so curious how the the nuances of these situations affect what you do
2: you know that's a really great question because i have to be confidential a lot of the times other people's lives depend on these mm. the appraisal is to establish value and also it's for division it's for sale it's for donation it's for insurance and so when i go in i have to be really sympathetic to the people who have hired me and the material i'm working with So, yeah, there's a lot on my shoulders. And hence, I mentioned I take care of my clients. I think all my clients, those who surround my projects who are still alive are friends. And I've kept them friends all my life because we have one objective, and that's to celebrate the material and do right by it. Sure. And that includes history, too. You know, it brings history into the quotient with the money and with the rarity of the rare object.
1: What was the favorite piece that you ever had to work with or get to see up close?
2: Oh, my gosh. That's always a tough one. I I went into a building one time. It was the size of a football field, and it was in a wheat field in Montana. And I opened it up, and it was like I was on a frozen star. Before me, was a a 60-foot-high pavilion building with the world's best, biggest antique carousel in it. Mm. And it wasn't a carousel for kids to grab the brass ring. In the center, it had a calliope and it, it had bars with full nude carved women on them. And the Parisians of the 1890s in the this palace is where I was. They would get into coaches and they would drink champagne,
1: oh. <laughs> champagne
2: in coaches. So, so yeah. I don't know if there's anky panky going on, but it was <laughs> a fascinating thing to find in a wheat field. And it had been sitting there for 40 or 50 years The owner had just kind of meant to set it up and had never really had the chance to do so. That must have been surreal.
1: So tell me about your transition from retail. I know you've always been intrigued and involved in art and antiquities and such, but you did make a change. So walk us through that.
2: Yeah. So my big transition is is retail is a creative process. At one time I lived in a ghost town near Yellowstone Park, Montana. It was at a mile high. I was Virginia City, Montana. Mm-hmm. And I just started plugging old buildings with retail outlets. And so so what that would look like is I owned the live theater there. And and by the way, there was a saloon attached to the theater. So that was that was a lot of fun to <laughs> keep everybody in line. But
1: keeping it lively.
2: One day, for instance, the state of Montana owned a building and they came to me and they go, Would you like to have this space? to operate a store out of. And so I looked at it and it was a cinder block shell that looked like an antique building. So what I did is I decided to turn it into an antique old opium den. (laughs) And so once I I brought in a, a painter, a set designer to paint water drips on the walls and I got rattan cuts and I got incredible old graphics and then I filled it up with jewelry so so it became a jewelry store and so things like that there's a huge creative process to it Mm -hmm. but you notice where i'm operating out of i'm in a ghost town I'm trying to make everything look old. I'm I'm such a nerd. I, I just was doing it even back then, you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, 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 don't sell yourself short because, you know, you do live in rural Montana. And that is one of the things you pointed to when I asked you about obstacles, roadblocks that you've overcome. <laughs> Getting to this international status that you have as a world-renowned appraiser. What can we learn from your journey? How did you do it?
2: Yeah, how I punch out into the outer world and and why I'm on a jet every other week going to some location for a fabulous treasure is I had to build my reputation. And what that means is integrity, knowledge and hard work and hope. It's like every day I, I would get up and I would yearn. And so hmm. I had a lot of friends in New York City. And and I remember one time I was in New York City at an event it was an appraisal appraisal event. And a couple of the New York appraisers with their white linen cards picked up my card, which has a picture of a, of a soldier holding the, the, the reins of a horse. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of flamboyant. It came from an old playing card, a Victorian playing card. Cool. And they're laughing at my card. And it's like, you know, hey, I'm a Montana guy. We have horses out there. And I'm sorry, I don't have a white linen card, but, but I, still, I still got out of Montana and I'm here working. And yeah, I'm an expert.
1: And that's how you stand out and become singular. And I and you've been on the TV show Antiques Roadshow. You've consulted and appeared on other TV appraisal productions. How did you get involved in that?
2: That's an interesting process. I, I love the program. I was a fan when it started in 1997. And we traveled down the line and I'm in Montana. And then one day this reputational build that I've talked about catches up and they invited me to be on it. And I was so Mm-hmm. As a collectibles appraiser and a decorative arts appraiser and ethnographic appraiser on the show, you'll see me on TV still with the program, but I'm no longer taping. Yeah, I, I'm working on another project currently. Yeah,
1: I hope you still get the residual checks, but
2: Ain't no checks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Well, it's all about promotion as well. And I was just reading a little bit about the industry, which I really didn't know anything about before mm-hmm. we decided to do this interview, and. What I realized is that you serve the purpose of not only obtaining the necessary information on art and pieces, but, you know, more importantly, you're translating it into a language that people outside of the art world, people who often know little or know nothing about the pieces, can understand and appreciate. So what's the hardest part about that? And also,
2: Mm -hmm. how
1: do you get past this feeling that people might look at you with side eye like, "Mm, is that for real?
2: No, they wouldn't dare.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Most of us know very little about yeah what you're praising
2: yeah when you walk up to an artifact or you look at a painting or an antique there are so many layers that you see into on that so there's the creator of it it's been sitting around all these years I mean it it just hasn't aged like humans do yeah and so it's got a backstory so creation backstory it's it's been put away and then celebrated several times and so. It, it takes years and years to to examine a painting and have the knowledge to know is it really a great painting or is it just kind of a mediocre painting? Right. So when you do what I do, you have to have a, a little bit of a native talent, a genius to look at things and and recognize, but you also learn over the years. And I've I think I've literally like I did one collection with a million artifacts in it. Wow. So I've seen millions and millions of things and that's all I do. I read about it and I study it and I have it. I I help people though too to market their things. So mm-hmm.
1: okay, tell me about that.
2: For instance, I I had a one client and his grandfather had been the the buyer for William Randolph Hearst at San Simeon, mm-hmm. and he didn't know what he had. And I went in and I I helped him to determining out a super rare painting, and it's now hanging next to a Vermeer in the National Gallery. So I'm able to make people realize what's around them in their situation.
1: Well, if we were to start to get into some takeaways from your journey, Mm -hmm. and there might not just be one top nugget of wisdom, but when it comes to finding professional purpose, which is a big part of what we try to unearth in these conversations, what would you tell people in terms of takeaways that's based on your
2: journey? The takeaway that I have from my life and my career is, is that this is kind of a vocation. Hmm. I look at it as, as multi pronged. I'm out there to save history, to acknowledge history, to celebrate history. But I'm, I'm also there. I keep going back to the people that I'm helping with this. Usually when, when there's a rare object and somebody has it, it comes to my attention. It floats to the top or it's, it's the answer in the magic eight ball that I see because it's a death, a divorce, they need money, they don't know what they're going to do with the piece. And so I think it's really important with a career to not only love the material you're working with or the job you're doing, but love those around you who you can help who it's it's like every day I get up and sometimes you don't want to take 30 calls from somebody, who has an anti-German doll. <laughs> I'll even take those calls. <laughs> and it's like, no, I, I, I can't be short with this person. And I find myself, I'm pulled into it. And miraculously, I always get some wonderful adventure out of treating somebody nice.
1: So is it re- about relationships to some extent and connection for you? I mean, the networking is obviously an offshoot of that as well. But it sounds like it's you really enjoy the interaction with your clients. I do.
2: And as I said earlier, they've been friends. I also enjoy my colleagues. I know some of the major names in this industry and, and they're, they're friends and we all take care of each other because I cover the territory of the West. And so then I have friends in London, I have friends in New York, friends in the South. And Mm-hmm. And it's like whenever we meet each other, it's like a long lost brother because you're always in a museum basement or a, a collector's safer attic. When you get together, there's a big love fest amongst appraisers. It's quite a wonderful thing. Yeah.
1: Right. And it's very specific what you do. Where do you see your business in five years or even 10?
2: Yeah. I keep getting questions about, well, are you going to start appraising NFTs and Pokemon cards? And Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's
1: valid. How is it changing and evolving?
2: Yeah, the business is. The average collector, when I started out, there were people that went all the way back into the 20th century and Now a really good solid collector is 50 and works in Silicon Valley. And he remembers his first Pokemon card Mm -hmm. or it's his first pair of Air Jordans. And so (laughs) the material keeps me relevant because the values are there and the interest is there. And so I just kind of follow that trail. But I see myself doing exactly what I'm doing. But I also look at my resume and my CV and my CV means a lot to me. As it grows, it's like, oh, my God, I, you know, I handled the estate of a president or I, I I, was in and looked at the contents of a sealed house that belonged to Howard Hughes or I, yes. I, I, it, it's, it's just incredible. Or Al it's,
1: Capone, we never talked about him. What well, was the most interesting find there before I, before we run out of time?
2: Al Capone's granddaughters got a hold of me. And when he died in 1947, everything that was in his home went to them. And so the thing that I found the most fascinating, we actually held an auction about a year ago, and his pistol sold for a million dollars, but that wasn't it. Mm. The most fascinating thing was a video that he had taken, he was on his yacht, and he pans around with his camera. And there's this super handsome Dean Martin looking young guy right in front of him. And I go, I know who that is. That's lucky Luciano. <laughs> and yeah. then next to him is a really handsome older guy. And I go, Oh my God, that's Frank Costello. So I oh, think that this videotape was the a meeting where they were starting that world in, in America. <laughs> wow. And to find historical documents like that. Sure. Yeah, it's every day is a discovery and an uncovery of of something great like that.
1: Oh, I can see how it lights you up and you're smiling. And it's been amazing to hear these stories. So tell me where people can learn more and find you online.
2: Yeah, I have a great website. It's kind of fun to go through it. It's gappraisals.com. You can follow me on social media, Timothy Gordon Appraiser. And hey, I'm out there. Just Google me. You'll find me if you want to get in touch.
1: Are you starting to do some reels when you go, let's say, out in the field? Get some videos on your yeah, social? I'm actually
2: working on another television project currently. And so ah. stay tuned. Knock on wood,
1: right? All right. All right. Well, Timothy Gordon, it was great to have you on Bucket List Careers. I really enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you for sharing your journey and your wisdom with us. Thanks so much for joining me here at Bucket List Careers. I'm Krista Laurie. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to write me a review, share an episode with a friend, or DM me some input, a guest idea. I'd be happy to hear from you. You know where to find me, at Bucket List Careers, on all social media platforms. We'll be back on Thursday with a fresh guest. Be well. An ironic media production.
2: Visit us at ironick